We are looking at 1 Corinthians 13 this morning, and the title of our message is What It Means to Be Spiritual. What It Means to Be Spiritual. Please follow along with me as I begin reading the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which says this. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together in your word. Teach us, we pray, as we dialogue, as we study, as we listen to not only what your word says, but what it means by what it says. Help us to apply this to our own lives. Keep us from thinking about other people and how much they need to hear these words that we might first and foremost apply them to our own life and that we be a reflection of genuine love in the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing on with our study through 1 Corinthians, and we come to chapter 13, a a chapter that I think is one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. People um, know about the 15 characteristics of love that are mentioned in verses 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, it keeps on going on. But uh, before we get there, we're going to be looking at these first three verses keeping in mind that that famous passage on love really is within the context of spiritual gifts and the abuse of spiritual gifts and really uh, even chaos and uh, cruelty going on in the church. There was even blasphemy according to verse 3 of chapter 12, um, things that have nothing to do with uh, true spiritual gifting or giftedness. Um, There was a lack of unity of the church because everybody was seeking the same gift, which isn't real unity. Unity is everybody with the same spirit, exercising different gifts, um, giving honor to the Lord, and caring for one another. Uh, And um, we see that uh, in verses 14 through 27, we saw of chapter 12 that every member of the body is important. And so we come to this context remembering that Love is not, we can't just rip it out and give it its own definition. And even though it has all of these characteristics of love, these are characteristics which require great sacrifice and strength. It is not a wimpy or cushy kind of love, a touchy-feely love. It's within the context of great conflict in the church. It's not afraid to confront. Um, I remember... um, a time when I was a young pastor, uh, my first couple of years in the pastorate, we had a young man in the church. And this young man was coming to church faithfully. He wasn't from a Christian background, but he seemed to pick up on things very quickly. I remember he was in our Fundamentals of the Faith course, and the teacher there told me that he was his best student, putting in, you know, t- maybe, maybe 10 hours a week on his homework. I mean, he was really impressed by this young man. Well, it comes to find out that this young man had kind of a double life, and he was... Uh, 
He ended up getting arrested. He was involved in a public crime that was uh, flagrant, and, and, uh, and he was not repentant on it. didn't seem to be repentant about his crime or being caught and arrested, um, and uh, didn't want to see me afterwards, didn't want to talk to me. But eventually, I was invited by his mother to join him and a counselor that she had chosen that she thought would be good for him. And so I, I go to this counselor's office. I, I will never forget this day. Uh, it was like, like the lights were dimmed. The, the curtains were drawn mostly. There was some, you know, you can kind of see outside, but it had thin layers of, what is it, voile? I don't know, something you can look through. Uh, but couldn't see outside, and the carpet was about as thick as you can imagine. And the, I sat down on a couch and sunk down. I mean, it was like pillows everywhere. It was impossible to get hurt in this room. And um, uh, But that wasn't the half of it. Uh, we started out, and the counselor uh, said he'd like to start, and he kneeled before this young man. And he put his hands on this young man's knees, which kind of creeped me out. And he said, I just want you to know we love you in this room, and nobody here is going to harm you or do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. And uh, he went, I said, we got back up, he sat down, and they started talking, and, and, uh, and I, I was just observing. I was there as an observer. And finally, the, the time came when he looked at me and said, Pastor, would you like to say anything? I said, yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I just have a question. And I said the man's name, and I said, how are you going to deal with your sin? And the counselor stood up and said, whoa, 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 whoa. We are not going to make anybody feel uncomfortable here. But it was just, I was feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not sure how he was accomplishing his goal. But... Um, there, there, there is something known as non-confrontational counseling. This is not what Paul's love chapter is really enshrined in. It's, it's surrounded by controversy and confrontation and helping them to change. And there is a premise behind chapter 13 and uh, the love that we are to have. And the premise is this, a truly spirit-filled life involves self-denial and sanctification that demonstrates a genuine love. I'll say that again. Um, a truly spirit-filled life involves self-denial and sanctification that demonstrates a genuine love. So when we think about love in the Bible, we need to remember, first of all, that love is commanded. We are commanded to love. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Martin Luther had a great quote about loving your neighbor. He said that we are commanded in the scriptures to love our neighbors. And since your wife is your closest neighbor, you should love her the most. And uh, we, we, we're reminded that we are to uh, love one another, which means that uh, we are being disobedient when we're not truly loving one another. And 
It involves both sacrifice and sanctification. When I say sanctification, I'm talking about being set apart, uh, being set apart for a specific task. Who is the most sanctified player on a football team? The kicker, right? He is unlike any other player. He is cleaner than any other player. He is set apart uh, for a specific purpose. And if the coach decides to use him uh, as a nose guard, uh, the team comes unglued. The crowds come, what are you doing? He is set apart for a specific purpose. He's our leading scorer. He is the guy who uh, just has one job. Uh, and as Christians, we are set apart in this world. We look different. We should, our lives should be cleaner. And we have a different goal, a different purpose than what everybody else is involved in. We are sanctified. And it involves sacrifice. Listen to the idea of sacrifice associated with love in a few passages from Scripture. One of them is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we have that giving there. Galatians 2.20, The Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Ephesians 5. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. Pastor John's going to be preaching from that this morning, so I don't want to spend too much time there. Um, but um, if we think about Ephesians and we think about in, in chapters 1 through 3, it talks about all the blessings we have in Christ. Chapter 4 says, now walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Chapter 5 begins with this idea of walking in love. And then we get down to um, verse um, 15, and it says in chapter 5, verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So there's this idea of walking in wisdom. So chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy. Chapter 5, verse 1, walking in love. Um, and now we have walking in wisdom in, in verse 15. And we have this idea, this command in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, which is for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? And we have these five descriptive words. We've gone through this before. These five descriptive words describe what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. It's speaking, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's singing and making melody, those two words, singing and making, uh, with your heart to the Lord. Uh, it's always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even God the Father, and it's being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so we have these five descriptive words that affects your speech, how you speak, your speaking, the, the joy and the, the, how you sing and the joy in your heart. It affects your gratitude and it affects how you submit to one another. And then we have this idea of wives submitting to their husbands as Christ, uh, as the church submits to Christ. And we have verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So once again, we have this idea of love and sacrifice together. But there's also sanctification. Take a look at verse 26. It says, so that, and this is a beautiful part of this passage because it not only tells us um, that Christ died for the church and sacrificed himself for the church, but what was his goal? What was his purpose in doing that? We have a purpose clause so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So we have this idea here 
Uh, and there's a picture that goes along with the first century um, marriage celebration. In the first century, uh, a wedding took place in three stages. There was the actual uh, arrangement by the fathers that was made originally. And then after that, there was a betrothal. The betrothal was the legally binding ceremony where the two families got together and the couple, the, the husband, the groom actually said to the, his bride, you are my wife in their vows. And they were legally married. In fact, in the first century, if you wanted to get out of a betrothal, you had to get legally divorced. It was that binding. And so um, uh, the third stage of that uh, wedding would be the celebration, which could take place months, even up to a year after the betrothal, which was not consummated. They, weren't, they didn't live together. They didn't move in together, but they were, but they were married uh, in the sense of they were betrothed to one another. They were legally committed to one another. And then once the celebration took place, uh, there was a part where the, the bride uh, traditionally would take a ceremonial bath and her bridesmaids would help her. They didn't have wedding showers, they had wedding baths. And so they would go to the local bathhouse or if they had a bath in the home and they would make a, kind of a, a big ceremony out of this bridal bath, they called it. And she was cleansed, she was perfumed, she was dressed, and then she would wait the rest of her life probably. But she would wait for her groom to come pick her up, to procure her from her home. This is what's going on in Matthew chapter 24 when some of the bridesmaids don't have enough oil for their lamps. They're waiting for the groom to come fetch them, right? Why is he going to fetch her? He goes to her home with his groomsmen and he parades her through the town to his father's home where he presents her to the father, the one who had arranged everything in all her splendor, in all her glory, in all her beauty. That was the picture of the first century wedding. But now picture what's going on here. It's a little bit different. Read again verses 26 and 27. In Ephesians 5, it says, so that he might sanctify her, that is, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. It's not a bridal bath that cleanses her. It is the word of God that cleansed her. This was one of the Lord's purposes or goals in actually marrying the church or becoming the, 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 the groom for the church and the church being his bride, being the head of the church, it says uh, that he might present not to the Father but to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless, which is a, an amazing sight because the church, unlike you men who have found someone to marry who has been blinded and agreed to marry you, unlike that, uh, you were attracted to her from day one, right? And there was this, this uh, there was, she was already beautiful in your eyes before you even spoke to her the first time. And so, uh, but now uh, the church was stained, was in rebellion against God the Father, and there was nothing that attracted Christ to the church, but Christ, in obedience to the Father, not only sacrificed him to the church, but had the goal of cleansing and purifying the church through the word so that she might be presented as holy, blameless, separate. And what I'm trying to point out is that Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the spirit. And part of being filled with the spirit is submitting and husbands are to sacrificially submit to the Lord as they lead their wives. And 
they are to also be sanctifying their wives, which means they are also to be sanctified. So you have this picture, and I'm just, I'm just trying to, to build a framework for 1 Corinthians 13 that true spirituality involves sacrifice and sanctification and genuine love. And we find that in several places in Scripture. We come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we remember our premise that a truly spirit-filled life involves self-denial and sanctification and demonstrates a genuine love, those three attributes, self-denial, sanctification, and genuine love. That's what it means to be spiritual, spirit-filled, to be a spiritual person, which was the opposite of what was happening in Corinth because the Corinthians thought that to be spiritual meant that you spoke in tongues or you had some supernatural wisdom or you had some supernatural knowledge that people didn't have and so they were seeking after and desiring the flashier gifts so that they could be seen, not because they loved one of their fellow members of the body which is why Paul has been hitting on this for some time, even in chapter 8. If you look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, verse 10, where he's talking about freedom, and, and, uh, and uh, he says, For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? In other words... Because you have some knowledge that an idol is nothing and you have no problem with eating meat sacrificed to idols and you have Christian freedom to do so, but if somebody sees you dining in a temple, won't they be uh, think that they can do it too even though they're weak? And they do it and it's sin for them because they violate their conscience. He says in verse 11, For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Paul oftentimes puts these little phrases in there. Which, which brother? The one for whom Christ died. Christ died for him and you don't care anything about him. How can you be spiritual? You think you have spiritual freedom? How can you be spiritual when you're not thinking about someone else? You think you have spiritual gifts? How can those gifts mean anything when you don't really love others in the body? That's the tone that comes so we're going to get now to these first three verses. But before we do, all that was introduction. Any questions about what I've said so far? Okay. Let's go on. So as we look at these first three verses, we see three reasons why loveless actions, no matter what these actions are, have nothing to do with true spirituality. Three reasons why loveless actions have nothing to do with true spirituality. Doesn't matter what the actions are, we're gonna see three reasons. And these three reasons have to do with the past and the present and the future. The first reason is that loveless actions have not made you more spiritual in the past. Loveless actions have not made you more spiritual in the past. Take a look at chapter 13, verse one. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So there's, there's, uh, there's a lot going on here. I'm sure that one of the things you noticed is that he uses a perfect tense verb, right? I have become, not present tense, I am becoming. 
Uh, not future tense, I will become. Not past tense, uh, but I have become. It's perfect, it's perfect tense. The idea of perfect tense here is that something happened in the past, but the focus is on the present reality. And so what he's saying here is that, hey, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become, which means I am right now, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's first of all talk about what it meant to speak with tongues. Speaking in tongues in the first century was not some sort of gibberish or ecstatic speech, but speaking in tongues was the gift of being able to speak in known languages. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, they spoke in known languages. They spoke, um, uh, uh, there were people from 15 different nations, Parthians, and they're all listed there. And they heard them speaking the glories of God in their own tongues, in their own language. How is that possible? It's a supernatural gift of being able to do that. And um, now some people look at this and they say, oh, but those are the tongues of men. But Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. And so some people today will say, "Uh, yeah, it's true that I don't speak in known languages like the tongues of men, but I have the gift of speaking in angelic languages, which sounds irrefutable. But uh, first of all, angelic languages, we don't know what language now, we don't know what language will be spoken in heaven. I know that those from the Latin American countries think that Spanish will be spoken in heaven. It's the heavenly language, right? And in South Africa, the Afrikaners thought that Afrikaans was the heavenly language. And I mean, you go around the world, oh yeah, you know, you, you haven't learned Spanish yet? Well, you will, because you're gonna have to speak when you get to heaven. But, uh, you know, um, but when we think about uh, angels, first of all, every time an angel speaks in the scripture, they speak in a known language. So if they do have a different dialect or uh, a different language altogether, how would we even know that? You say, well, Paul says here that he speaks in those tongues. Paul is using a writing technique that will become very clear in this passage called hyperbole. Hyperbolic speech means that you use exaggeration in order to emphasize a point. I've told you a million times never to exaggerate, right? I've told you a million times never to use hyperbole. It's, 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 uh, it's those, those things. We haven't really told, said it a million times. We're just using an exaggerated form of speech to make a point, to emphasize. And so Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, he's, he's trying to say, notice, definite article, I speak with the tongues of men. If I knew every language possible to man, Did Paul know every language? No. How do we know that? Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, he's in Lystra, and he and Barnabas showed up, and they heal a man who was crippled from birth. And people start shouting out, uh, Acts chapter 14, that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes. And they called Barnabas Zeus because he was probably better looking than Paul, uh, because Hermes is the god of speech and Paul was doing most of the talking. The better looking part, we don't know, that's conjecture, but they, it's, the scripture says that 
that, uh, her, that Paul was doing more of the talking. But Paul and Barnabas didn't know what was going on until they brought a, a, a bull to sacrifice to them or some kind of oxen to sacrifice to them. And then somebody explained to them what was going on. When they heard that, they tore their clothes, Acts 14, 14. They tore their garments. And Acts 14, verse 15, they said, no, I'm Zeus, Paul says. No. We are, we are also our men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. So the story is clear there. It's clear that Paul didn't speak in all languages. But he's saying here in chapter one, chapter 13, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, if I speak with the tongues of men, if I speak with the tongues even of angels, his point being, if I could speak with more tongues than you can possibly imagine, but have not love, I have already become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, noisy gong, uh, we're not exactly sure what that is. There are some who have looked back in antiquity and um, talked about the fact that it was just a, a sounding brass or uh, some sort of um, a smashing sound when a piece of metal was abused. That's how one commentator described it. Uh, today, we might, it, it was irritating. We might describe it today as a, a screeching sound the microphone makes, or when somebody scratches their fingers on a chalkboard. Can you picture that sound? Or um, can you picture that sound? That was a mixed metaphor. That's good. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the vuvuzela, vuvuzela, you know what that is? The plastic horn that they've invented for soccer uh, to make it more exciting. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, it just goes, you know, I, I don't. Anyways, um, so when we have this idea of a, cl a, 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 a clanging sound or a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, clanging, clanging cymbals, uh, we think of uh, rock music here, but he's talking about something that's repulsive to the human ear, which some of you might equate that with rock music. But the, the, the idea here is just again and again, smash, smash, smash. And there, we do have records uh, in antiquity in the first century of different um, cults and different pagan worship rituals where there was a, a clanging of a cymbal or a smashing of a cymbal again and again and again, a repetitive sound that would whip people into a frenzy for their ecstatic experience of pagan worship. And he's already rebuked them about that kind of pagan worship, but he, here he says, you know, I've just become obnoxious. I've just become irrelevant. I've become uh, something that doesn't contribute anything to true spirituality. Verse two, we not only see that he already has become, if he has love like that, loveless actions, but he ramps it up a little bit. He's escalating here in his argument. And he says you what he already is. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now he's in the present tense here. Not the perfect tense. He's moved. I, I am I'm nothing. I, I am nothing. And in the present tense in, in Greek is the continuous tense. It's this idea. I am nothing, and I just continue to be nothing if I have this kind of, these kind of gifts. Now, there's nothing wrong with the gifts themselves. The gift of tongues was a gift in the first century given, uh, we'll learn in chapter 14, 
to be a benefit for unbelievers, um, but it was not something that everybody had. Uh, he made that very clear just in the previous verse, verse 30, or uh, chapter 12, verse 30, a um, couple verses behind here. All do not have the gift of uh, healings, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? So uh, this was not something that, was, uh, that everybody had, nor should everybody seek to have, but it was a gift that was in the first century. And we will see uh, later in this chapter that tongues, well, actually, you can look in verse 8, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away, and there are tongues, they will cease. And so tongues were designed to be a temporary gift. Everybody agrees with that. We just disagree. Some churches disagree on when they ceased. Uh, history would tell you, church history would tell you that they ceased in the first century. There are some who believe that in 1900 or 1901 that there was a second wave that came back. But we'll see when we get to verse 8 that that really goes against the whole context and the grammar of verse 8, that the word to cease there means to stop, um, to stop independently, and to stop with finality. But, and just, just to review for those who are just coming in on here, because we've talked quite a bit about tongues, um, when, when I meet someone today who tells me that they speak in tongues, uh, I try to lovingly... Um, uh, you know, have a discussion with them if they want to talk about it, if they ask me, do I believe tongues for today? I do not, and they say, well, I've spoken in them. My response is, I just simply don't believe that what you are doing is actually the biblical gift of tongues, which was to communicate the truths of God in a known language so that somebody else could hear it. I believe that what you are doing would be better be described as ecstatic speech, which is a gibberish that gives you a feeling of somewhat, a somewhat ecstatic feeling of joy by whipping yourself into a frenzy surrounded by other people who are doing the same thing, and you may be somewhat manipulated to do that. I think that's extra biblical. I don't think that is what's in the Bible as referred to as the gift of tongues. And so, uh, but Paul makes it very clearly here, even if I spoke with any language you can imagine, um, but do not have love, even if I have the gift of prophecy. Uh, and Paul did have the gift of prophecy. So people say, oh, is this really hyperbolic? Because he did have, the, he, he was the speaker. He was the one who, I mean, he wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. What he spoke was God's word. He had the prophetic gift. He was an apostle. And I would agree with that. Um, but look what he says after that. He says, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains. Now, did Paul know all mysteries and all knowledge? No. And we know that he didn't because 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9 tells us. A few verses down, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9 through 12, Paul says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Oh, interesting. Uh, he's, he, he, you know, he, okay, if he knew all, if he had the gift of prophecy, he's only prophesying in part, and he only knows in part. He says, verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And so, Paul makes it clear in the very same chapter that he doesn't know everything. But go back to verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13. He's speaking this hyperbolic language. And even if 
It's that kind of statement. And even if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and even if I had all faith, so as to remove mountains. And we know that Paul had great faith. Paul had such great faith that when he was traveling to Rome and he had heard from the Lord that through an angel, by the way, who told him in a vision that they all would make it safely, even though there was a great storm they were in, he had such great faith that he convinced everybody else on the boat to stay in the boat, to the extent that some of them were cutting away the lifeboat, the extra boat, that they were wanting to get in it. And actually, uh, Acts 27, verse 30, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pre- the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. Paul had such faith that they all would live, but only if they stayed in the boat and together that the other sailors or the sailors on the boat cut away the lifeboat for those who were wanting to get away. It was really um, so great a faith that Paul was the one who was the prisoner on the ship giving the instructions to the 276 people on the ship and every one of them survived. But did Paul have all faith? I think, again, it's hyperbole here. Um, And so uh, notice he says, I am nothing in the present tense. So he's ramping up. First of all, if I had gifts like tongues and had them more than any of you else, uh, more than anybody else but didn't have love, I would be, have, have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have to get to prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Let's take a look at the third reason why loveless action has nothing to do with true spirituality. No matter how impressive the action is, he's talking about prophecy and faith, but if we're doing it without love for one another... It's meaningless. He comes to a a third example here, a future example. He says, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, the tense of these verbs are uh, future here, the future when he says to be burned, that in the future he might be burned. But even if I did this now, surrendered my body, gave it up, we're not sure exactly what he means by to be burned. We don't have any biblical records of Christians being burned um, at this time. But it wasn't long after this, maybe even just 10 years, where there are records of people being burned. Nero one, uh, came into play and was burning Christians. Um, it seems like he's talking about martyrdom. Uh, commentaries have tried to come up with all kinds of different solutions as to what he could be talking to. Some would say that he, he's talking about being burned like with a branding iron, which is what they did with slaves sometimes. So even if I became a slave, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Um, because actually in the same book, back in chapter 7, he argued that if you can be free, to stay free as, and not to go into slavery. So it doesn't seem like a good idea for Christians to become slaves. Um, for, you know, other than being slaves for Christ, in which case there is no branding or burning. 
But uh, there, it's not like the idea of being burned for your beliefs was foreign to the Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Throw them into the fire. So, so we have examples. I think he's talking about, he's giving, in every verse here, every phrase, he's ramping up. He's getting more and more extreme. Even if I sold everything I have to give to the poor, even if I gave my life sacrificially as a martyr, but if I didn't do it with love, he says, it profits me nothing. It's a passive verb, which I know the, 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 the grammar is hard for us, but passive is not difficult, right? I hit the ball, that's an active verb. I was hit by the ball, that's passive. If you said, um, I was blinded by the light, uh, it's the light caused an action against you. But this is present passive, and he's saying, um, so, I, so I am being benefited by, the, by those actions, zilch, zero. They don't benefit me at all. Which the idea here is that even if I did these things in the future, there would be no of gain. There would be no gain to me. So here's the thing. Here's what he's getting at. If you are doing things in the church, using gifts in the church, if you give money to an orphanage or if you um, give your service or whatever you're doing, and you're doing it without a love for God and for other people, and the emphasis in this whole section is really on other people. If you're doing it without thinking about others first, that sacrificial kind of love, it doesn't do anything for your spirituality. No matter what your gifting is. Doesn't, it hasn't made you more spiritual in the, in the past. You are not more spiritual now. And you will not be more spiritual in the future based on these, this kind of loveless action. No matter what. And we look at the actions. We say, wow, that person has such a great gift. Or that person is so... Um, um, uh, you know, such a good speaker or such a good singer or such a good encourager or such a generous giver. But true spirituality isn't seen in the action of the gift, but rather in the motive. Is it really to build up others? And so the challenge for us is, am I doing what I do in the church, really caring for the people around me? Is that really my heart's motive? Question. You say there's a correlation with Job? That... Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Job, Job gets attacked both physically uh, and... Uh, with his possessions first and then physically, yeah. But um, the, it's interesting. There's, there, people have tried to make a lot of correlations uh, between this passage and Job. It's, it's, uh, I was reading this week, um, not because of what's in Scripture about Job, but there's extra-biblical, intertestimonial, intertestamental um, writing that is uh, fictitious writing about stuff that went on with Job. 
and there's, uh, there's belief that Job's daughters learned an angelic language that came about in the first century, and yet they're thinking that actually it was added by Montanists in the second century. But you think about, um, regardless of, of anything written and the historical and what's going on, Paul's point here is so clear. And he's going to get into this love, but it's a real challenge to us, I think, this idea that is our love genuine? We've got time for other questions. Yes, Morgan. Yeah, so I think that um, when we look at, um, so my, my, yeah, my, my proposition, and, and that was a really actually a premise. So a premise, when I say a premise, and this is kind of a weird, it's kind of a John Piper type thing to give a premise before the sermon. It's an accepted fact. And the premise really is this idea that um, you have, um, if you really want to be spiritual, it's going to involve self-denial, and it's going to involve, involve sanctification and a demonstration of genuine love, those three things. And in here, um, we, we've got to the part where he's talking about uh, true spirituality, and I think there's this, um, this, he's fighting against the argument that they thought they were truly spiritual based on the gifts that they were having. And he says, well, you don't love each other, so they count for nothing. And if you love one another and demonstrate those gifts, the purpose of them is to build one another up in the faith, and that's the sanctification. And the thing that caused my mind to think about the um, Ephesians 5 passage is that the husband, his goal is to sanctify his wife. He is to try to make her holy and blameless through the washing of water with the word, following the pattern of what Christ does with the church through the word. And so our goal in exercising our spiritual gifts would be focused so much on doing them in love that it will benefit others and it will set them apart and help them to grow in their faith. So that's a good question because that it was kind of something that was in my mind, but it's not explicit in the text. Yes? So heart check questions to ask yourself, uh, to review, to see what your motives are. And I think that's a great question. And listen, as I came to this text, this is hard because we lie to ourselves and the heart is deceitful, right? And so we say, well, why else would I be doing this? But what I think this text demands of us is that we step back and in our own prayer time, we say, Lord, you know my motives and you know they're tainted with other things. We have hearts that are drawn for public praise. We desire people to say how wonderful we are. Forgive me of that and help me to do this for others for your glory. Not for any praise or accolades that I might receive, but so that your name be exalted. Recognizing that any other motive I have for this means nothing. Actually, gives me a false sense of spirituality. 
And so I think those are the kinds of prayers we need to be praying as we come to this passage. And this, this passage should drive us to our knees with, with that. Um, yes, question. Yeah. So your question is, if I'm hearing it right, is that uh, can, even though our motives may be conflicted, should we still serve? And I think as long as your attitude is, Lord, help me, uh, I think we should. I think that, um, that a better question, I think God is more concerned with how we are doing things than what exactly we are doing. And are you doing them focused on loving and caring for other people genuinely? And you know what? People are pretty smart. They can pick up pretty easily on, on people who do things with a, a false motive. And so I think rather than, say, focusing so much attention on what is my spiritual gift or so much attention on telling other people what your spiritual gift is, that we should be focusing more attention on how can I love others who are in the same body? How can I love others that Christ died for with the same kind of love that he has? How can I help them to grow spiritually? Lord, help that to be my focus, sacrificially, seeing them sanctified as I encourage them and build them up in the faith. I think that's a big part of that. And so, yeah, I think that we shouldn't get... um, uh, frozen in the chair thinking like, well, I'll never be perfect. You'll never be perfect until you're with the Lord. You're also being sanctified and you need others to love on you and encourage you so that you will grow in the faith. So I think it's a good question. Yeah. Yes. Would you say that you're saying like, basically if you don't love, then you're denying you Christian? Because I feel like I see the relation between like a person who comes to Christ the last day because I'm not So I, the answer to your question is no. Uh, you said, do I think that he's, he's if, I, if I heard you correctly, you're saying, um, do you think he's getting at the fact that you may not actually be a Christian? Um, it's true that many who are in the church uh, and think they're Christians are not really Christians. And we have passages about the, the wheat and the tares, and we have passages about the fact that, and, 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 and listen, if you are questioning whether you really love others more than yourself, you should repent and you should look to your heart and say, Lord, am I even saved? I mean, that's a, that's a given. But Paul addresses the church here in Corinth. Um, he says, verse two, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those of you who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. And so there's this idea that he calls them saints, which they are holy, have been sanctified, have been set apart, which again, we talked about positional sanctification as opposed to progressive sanctification. So positionally by God, they're seen as holy, and yet progressively, they obviously needed to grow in their holiness. But he refers to them by that positional sanctification, by the fact that God sees them as holy. So uh, I think he's addressing believers here. I think the whole fact that he says to them um, uh, in verse 31, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, I think Uh, you cannot desire spiritual gifts if you are not a believer. You cannot obtain spiritual gifts if you are not a believer. I think he's assuming here that they are believers and encouraging them to 
to, if you're going to focus on something, stop focusing on the actual action that you're doing. Focus on how you might love others better. And, and really, that's, that's the challenge for us. I'll, I'll close uh, with, oh, is there more questions? No? Yes? No, come on. Yeah. Right. So it's a good question. How do we confront in love when we're questioning our own motives and, we, and it's not going to be taken in love? Maybe they're going to come back and say, well, if you were loving, you wouldn't have said it in the first place or something like that, or you would just be quiet. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So Matthew chapter 7 is the passage you'd go to for this, uh, one of the passages that could really help you with this, because oftentimes when you are confronting someone in love, the first thing they say is, don't judge me. Bible says, don't judge, and you're judging me. Who are you? To judge. Does it sound familiar? All right. So say, oh, I'm so glad you brought up that passage. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And sermon, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge. You're right. The Bible does say that. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Okay? Keep on reading. Verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly and take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the idea here is you see a speck in your brother's eye. And so there's something about our vision that we can see those things so clearly and we can't see the log in our own eye, right? And so knowing that, before we ever go to someone, we, sit, we say, Lord, please help me to look at this myself. Please help me, show me. Uh, I'm sure that I'm, uh, because it is what, what they were condemning in, um, in Matthew 7 what Jesus is condemning is not judging one another, but judgmentalism. And judgmentalism is judging one another by a standard that's different than the way you judge yourself. And that's what he's getting there. And so, and so we need to say, Lord, help me to see my own heart. Help me to see if there's anything close to this in my own life. Because we know how it, easy it is to see someone else in someone else's life and not see it in your own life. And so um, you know, you pray about it, you look at your own life, you ask others, hey, I, I'm not going to tell you about anything else, about any other situation going on. And then you go to the person and you say, listen, I know this is difficult. I know that this may risk our friendship. I want you to know I haven't taken this lightly. I want you to know that I first and foremost have been looking at this in my own life and trying to see if, how I can deal with it. I'm coming to you in love because I see something and I would want you to come to me if you saw it in my life. Just know that 
my best motives possible are for your benefit. And if, you, if there's anything in you that is reveling in the fact that you get to bring this up to them, that finally, now, you've got something to really lay on them because they brought 100 things to you, and you're just seeking a little bit of joy and sweetness out of being able to bring it to them, don't say it, right? So I, I would say that self-examination, be verbal about it. Just say, I know this is awkward. I know this is, may seem like I'm coming at you. Honestly, just between the two of us, I want to, Matthew 18 says, Matthew 18 verse 15, I want to win you over. So that's what you're trying to do. All right, I think that's a good way to close. Um, just thinking about the fact that love does not seek its own. It's not about us. And this is what really Paul is emphasizing all around this section on love. Let's pray. Father God, how grateful we are to you. Uh, you are a gracious God. And um, as we come to this passage, we prayed earlier that you would help us see things in our own life it is so easy to look at others where they need to change. Father, it is a challenge for us to love because we're such selfish people. And we are driven by society and everything else telling us to love ourselves first and foremost. Father, may we truly think of you first. We fail to love you with all our heart, all our mind, and all our soul. And this is why we need grace. But we endeavor to do that daily. And may you hear from us our heart of pure worship that we desire to glorify your name and exalt your name this day far above every other name that can be spoken. And we pray for those, Lord, who realize that they have never really repented of their sins and turned and trusted in you as Lord and Master, that this day they would repent and turn and trust in you. And help us, Father, who have been redeemed by your grace to care about others that you care about and are redeemed in the same way, that we might build them up and think of ourselves last. So we commit this to you and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.